welcome back to another episode of the TV That Changed Me podcast. I'm Beth Watson, and today we're going to be talking about the OC. First of all, I wanted to say a big thank you for all the lovely feedback we've had on last week's episode, in which we talked about girls and sex in the city with my good pal, Imi. I really love recording the episode, and so it's been so nice to hear people's feedback. So huge thanks for all of that. This week, however, I'm going to be chatting about one of my other favourite shows, my favourite high school drama, with actor, comedian and writer Helen Duff. As well as being multi-talented in all the ways I just mentioned, Helen is also somewhat of an orgasm expert. On her podcast, Come As You Are, she delves into the world of orgasms with open and insightful women and non-binary folk. She also tells her own story of not having an orgasm until she was 30. So we'll also be spending a good chunk of today's episode talking about sex on screen. Just in case you were planning on listening with your grandma, you might not really want to do that. Unless, of course, your grandma is super chill. Now, as it's obviously been several years since either of us watched the OC, I gave Helen a few episodes in season one to sink her teeth into. And before I could even ask her any questions about them, she dove in with some pretty savage opinions, which I can't wait for you to hear. Just a final note before we begin, there is some discussion of eating disorders in the second half of this week's episode. So I'll put some timings in the show notes in case that's something that you want to skip. Anyway, let's get on with the show. I have to be honest, I just, I was um, just watching, cramming the OC and I feel like the episode, I mean, maybe I shouldn't get into this until we've started whatever you want to do, but the episodes are so much longer than they need to be. And yeah, also it's, that's yeah. true. <laughs> that's definitely true. I also, when I rewatched it the other day, I was like, I can't believe how bad the acting is oh like, gosh honestly so I couldn't remember so bad when I was a teenager or whenever I watched it I can't remember I literally thought they were amazing actors and I thought it was like beautifully done and now I'm like watching it like what is this what is this teenage nonsense? listen the reason I suggested it is because I was obsessed with it I used to get really emotionally involved with TV I still do actually I don't watch that much TV my boyfriend is a serial like um series binger you know he'll properly go in and do a whole um yeah a whole season of something in a night and I'll wake up the next day and be like what time did you come to bed last night I'd be like 4am <laughs> unreal we just started it and then it's done it's over I'm not watching any more of it and I don't have that I, I have neither that um dedication like a willful lack of care for my own sleep like I really respect sleep more than TV, I think. So yeah, I can't binge that much, but I think I feel like one of my first TV shows for that was The OC. And maybe it was heightened because I was just the perfect age where I was 16. It was my first year of sixth form. I'd gone to private school for the first time. I'd gone to boarding school for the first time. I got a scholarship to go to this like amazing school in Bristol. I was so excited to go. And then it was like everything I hadn't expected at all. I'd had so much freedom before that I'd just completely taken for granted. 
and also you didn't really get to go into Bristol. All these things that kind of shocked me and and saddened me. And I'd had a bit of a like kind of crisis. A big thing had blown up in the summer before I went and then I couldn't talk about it with anyone. So psychologically, I was in a really fragile place as well as just being a 16 year old. And I remember it would be on every Monday night and we would all watch it, all the girls. So this is like probably 60, 50 girls, like hormones running wild, sitting in front of the TV. Everyone would be silent. Everyone would have snacks. And you totally just zone in and have your, even though you were surrounded by all these other women or like about to be women, you'd completely lose yourself in this California landscape. Yeah, and I remembered it being emotionally like so evocative, feeling so much of the characters, <laughs> honestly believing that like Ryan and Marissa had this connection that was uh, intense beyond words and that I would uh, kill, literally physically kill to achieve with another uh, person. And then just watching it back now, I was like, this is so fucking shit. <laughs> This is astonishingly shit. Astonishingly bad. Like I also remember thinking the dialogue was like inspired and that Seth had these like amazing quips. And that's why, because I fancied both Ryan and Seth when actually I think a lot of people fancy one or the other. I don't think, looking back, I was like, did I fancy? I can't believe I fancied Ryan. I think maybe I fancied the the drama between Ryan and um, Marissa, the constant... I mean, when you watch it, you're actually like, it's not even drama. It's just really stale, awkward, not saying anything. But yeah, the drama. And I think I probably fancied Seth more. And I definitely, just watching now, was like, the much hotter relationship is the Seth-Summer relationship. And and then again, the even hotter relationship, I was going to say, is Sandy and his wife, like Seth's mum, whose name I've just forgotten, but in fact, I think it's just Sandy. Like, I was like, Seth's dad, Sandy Cohen, is the hottest thing in it by far. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's totally the eyebrows, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> it's the hottest man ever. And but I think I did fancy, I think I just fancied everyone in the show. Like, yeah. I fancied, uh, I definitely fancied Seth. I thought he was hilarious and sort of sensitive, and that's what, everything I wanted in a boyfriend. Mm-mm. Um and summer beautiful i think i definitely had lots of feelings for summer so hot yeah and then sandy he just is he's so kind he looks after everyone he's sandy's so, so kind. kind he has so much like jewish dad humor that's really solid and he also uh, looks great in a suit surfs every morning like what's not to love in the episode so that we cool. talked so about cool. um catching up on he has this like um, conflict over stopping becoming a public. He's been a public. De- he's worked for the PD his whole life. The the PD is his life. <laughs> he's never not been a public defender. And then he gets wooed by this private law firm, and immediately <laughs> decides he's going to work for them. There doesn't seem to be any. He talks a big talk about like, oh, they woo me every couple of years, and I never go for it. And then for some reason, he goes for it. But um. Yeah, he's definitely like the moral centre of the show. He's the only person who appears to do any work, but also <laughs> who has a kind of like, who who isn't materialistic, even though I'm sure that actor is as vain and, you know, as any of the rest of them. It's just that the others are so obviously um, 
wearing very little. Also, Sandy gets away with wearing a full suit. I think that's another great thing about his character. He he's allowed to put on clothes. There's a bit where um, Marissa, like, it makes me feel so uncomfortable now, and I think it's because. I'm an old lady, but also, even at the time, I was I was really insecure about my body. Like, uh, I, I think that's quite normal for a sixteen-year-old, but like deeply, deeply, deeply insecure. And I, and watching it back, I felt really, I felt a lot of compassion for myself. Actually, I felt a lot of compassion for the young girl who, who thought that the OC was something to aspire towards mm-hmm. and to feel like heartache about. Because I just wanted to like stretch my arms back in time and give her a hug and say like this is the absolute pits of existence (laughs) like don't beat yourself up for not looking like Marissa because there's a scene where she's just had sex with Luke her like on again off again boyfriend at the very beginning and uh, he he later ends up having an affair with her mum but that's still to come and uh she and Summer are like joking about it in their bedroom, somebody's bedroom. Summer's kind of acting as if she's had loads of sex before and like you just have to get back on the horse. And if it wasn't great the first time, that's just how it is. Marissa's like, it wasn't kind of how I expected it to be. But that's all that's really said. For best friends, Summer and Marissa, they talk uh, astonishingly little to each other. Like their exchanges are always about three words per sentence and two sentences max. They're obviously only friends because they just like how they look side by side. Anyway, so she says, uh, oh, it wasn't quite what I'd hoped for. And then uh, Summer says, you just need to get back on that horse and makes this sort of cowgirl riding dance move action. And then Marissa goes, don't, don't, Summer, my dad's downstairs. He might hear, right? Next scene. Marissa and Summer walk into Dad's office, Jimmy's office. Jimmy's feeling a lot of guilt because he hasn't told Marissa about the impending divorce he's having with her mother, even though there's never been any love in that marriage. So how can anybody be shocked that they're breaking up? (laughs) Anyway, but the thing I noticed straight away, Marissa is barely wearing trousers. And I don't mean that they are like short shorts. I mean, like the, the waistband is so low. I'm astonished. A, her pubes aren't out, although perhaps she hasn't even grown any because she's supposed to be so young. And B, that <laughs> that nobody thought to just put a belt on, put a belt on her. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because in that moment, she's supposed to be, she's just shown some faux modesty about like, oh, don't make a riding cowgirl motion because you might rock the floor so much that my dad suspects we're talking about sex. That's like the level of... um sort of vulnerability, naivety she's supposed to be showing. And then she walks into his office and she's, the vag is almost out. I don't understand where the line is there. I don't understand how that works. And there's more, chem- honestly, there's more chemistry between Marissa and the father than there ever is between her and Ryan. It's such a bizarre <laughs> show. <laughs> that is so true. That I, It's so funny you've touched upon so many things I wanted to talk to you about already. But I think like that is... It's it's this kind of why they all seem to be talking about sex, but it's so tepid. 
Yeah. It's so tepid and it's so timid and it's so um, sad. It's like with some sadness, she's like, oh, I've had sex with Luke. And then it's like, we'll just do it again. That's that's Mm. the the only way to have better sex is to just keep going, not to talk to each other about it, not to talk to your friend properly about it. It's just like, just keep fucking until it's weird, really weird. I yeah, also but felt also a bit sorry for myself watching that. I was like, oh god. <laughs> yeah, like that's what I internalized. It's so weird because I think there's two things that I really took away from it. Looking back, I, I don't think I knew at the time. One was that that you that it was sort of this um, sex was this thing to achieve, and once it was done the first time, then yeah, exactly. You just kept practicing until it got good. But you didn't necessarily have a, a, a conversation about what you might enjoy or explore yourself in any way. Mm-hmm. And two was that uh, it was all about what you looked like because they are all so impossibly, immaculately presented all the time. Always wearing like stunning outfits. Uh, Summer is in this like negligee at one point that is designed, <laughs> is definitely like, well, probably over a hundred bucks. It's like pure silk, and she's what supposed to be sixteen, and is just fitted to her. Stunning. She looks like Jessica Rabbit. It's gorgeous, and they're also all the actors are probably about twenty-one at least, and so you're comparing yourself to these stunning adults <laughs> who are also models, and thinking, okay, that's what I need to look like semi-naked. And that's the kind of person I need to be for anyone to fancy me. So, yeah, I think I I really took that into sex in terms of uh, just always thinking about my appearance or at least my, like, exterior, looking down on myself from above. What What's this experience from the outside like, like? and not really being inside it at all? Because I was always kind of trying to perform in some way. Oh, so, so sad. Yeah, I know it is really sad. It is really sad. I was actually, I'm actually disappointed in the OC watching it. I'm like, but you right. hold such an important place in my teenage years. Do you not think that maybe the makers of it, the people who, who put it together, wrote it, directed it, who I'm sure, and I, this is an assumption. Although I think on the credits, it's definitely a man's name that says created by. Or, I'm pretty sure is is an all male production company because they've tapped into something that's classic that gets repeated with every iteration of this with like Heartbreak High or although I, I want to think that Heartbreak High was more gritty and weird because it was Australian and they all had like tie dyed hair and stuff but maybe it wasn't maybe it was as basic but they they tap into this formula of the pri- like the main audience for this show is going to be so jacked up on hormones. All we have to do is show them like characters that are 50% more attractive than they will ever be. And especially at this moment in their lives when they're like going through puberty, got horrible skin, halfway their breasts and like just about sprouting hair all over themselves. So give them that to like aspire to slash whip themselves over the back with these beautiful people and also make it all about sex, but never really discuss sex in a way that's actually helpful. I feel like that's the fault. I think... It's intended to be, once you've grown out of it, I think it's intended to be, yeah, impossible to understand because you're like, how could I ever have, but your brain is like perfect for that kind of shit when you're that age, I think. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the um, creator because it was created by Josh Schwartz and Mm. I think he also did, in the end, Gossip Girl. 
And Oh, fascinating. Yeah, and he I think he was 26 when he made the OC. Which is <gasps> Unreal. bananas. Absolutely wow. bananas. Like, wow, that's a really big job for a 26-year-old. Huge. And, <laughs> and yeah, I think re-watching it, you really think these women are have such they're very 2D. They're very 2D, yeah. these characters. There are very arcs. 2D. There is some kind of character development over, especially with Summer, mm. I think, over the seasons. But yeah, you can, knowing he's a 26 year old guy, makes mm. a lot of sense, I think. Weirdly, she gets to be witty and sharp and um, have a bit of nonce, basically, because she's paired with Seth, right? They have to justify the fact that he's interested in her by making her more intelligent than you would otherwise assume for a girl who's so hot. It seems to me like the character description. Also, um, it doesn't surprise me that it's made by somebody who's relatively young because it's like 25 episodes per series, which you would never get away with these days. And, And yeah, each of them, each, particularly Marissa's character, she just plays one note the whole time. She's always fucking everything up, taking too many sleeping pills, in the middle of Tijuana which is such a bizarre thing because like normally that would be if that was in the UK she'd get like slipped some rough MDMA and at least have like a bit of a good time before she spirals out of control right but Marissa takes like we don't know how many two two to five sleeping pills and just sort of spins out in this empty bar in Tijuana and gets super sweaty and then yeah, collapses in an alley. It doesn't, it's so weird how, um, and then from then on, I think she's got a proclivity for drugs and stuff, hasn't she? Because she's like broken and then Ryan has to keep saving her all the time and literally physically picking her up. At the end of that Tijuana episode, he carries her down the alley like she's Jesus. Like he's just picked her off a crucifix. It's so bizarre. <laughs> the imagery is like so bold. I know, I know, I know. And I think what's really interesting about Marissa's character is that she's constantly, yeah, doing this kind of reckless behaviour, right? You know, mm. she starts off with the sleeping pills and then she just kind of loses it and goes wild and goes for um, that guy Oliver who she meets in therapy and there's just yeah, this fucking kind of un- unravelling sort of, the unravelling of Marissa. Mm. Um, but I kind of wanted to, I was sort of thinking, I was like, what's her deal? Like, <laughs> her parents had got divorced, which is obviously very upsetting and can be very upsetting for many people. But I was Mm-mm-mm. thinking, but this level of out-of-control spiralling is... Is there something else that happens to Marissa that I don't remember as well? Do you know what's weird is I look at her and I think that's... And this probably just shows... I don't know if it means that I was really superficial. But I... I'm so glad stuff has changed now and that there are characters who have more passions and hobbies and, like, genuine interests. Because Marissa as an archetype is so familiar to me as, like... uh, a female character who has nothing other than male approval. You know, if she's fancied by boys and she's kind of okay, even though she doesn't really have any um, sexual agency herself. She never, she never feels anything particularly strongly for anyone in a kind of bodily way. I mean, she obviously has this thing with Ryan where she feels really attracted to him and it's all quite confusing for her. Uh, but in a way that also feels like a reflection of 
of his desire for her. You know, it's it's never coming from this like kind of physical animal hungry for actual intimacy, physical intimacy play it's for her. And then when she goes off the rails, like you say, it's a bit like sort of just throwing an empty sack against the wall. There's so little to her, both in terms of her body, like she's so tiny, but also in terms of like, what are we losing here? You know, if you think about as an, as a, as an audience, we're really invested. In, we were really invested in her mucking herself up. Like, don't do it. Not again. Right. But in a sense, and this sounds awful to say, what were we, what were we worried about her ruining? Like her, her, you know, passion for literature. We'd had no inclination of what she liked or what she had once enjoyed as a child or what she had aspirations towards. There was nothing that she was like chucking down the drain other than potentially maybe her good looks and uh, a relationship with a boy who she'd mucked about so many times. He, he, sh- he should fuck her off. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I know. I mean, come on. There's her passion for short shorts. There's the, um, there's her role on the carnival committee at school. Yeah, of course, of course. I did. <laughs> I did. Her, there's her terrible relationship with her mother. There's some, some real, you know, these are some real character traits. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing. She's just a sort of, the whole time she seems to be kind of replicating Julie, her mother's path who again was just kind of, not eye candy, but absolutely absolutely works on like manipulating her looks and her kind of feminine prowess. It's sort of the inverse, isn't it, Julie? Julie's like really in control of her sexuality, is a vamp, is the classic vamp, you know, because she's got red hair and wears like a satin silk, satin and silk, they're both materials, a red satin nightrobe and lipstick at bedtime so that's how you know she's in charge of her sexuality um but in every other respect they're kind of it's just the same trajectory like you start really fucked up and not really knowing what you're doing and confused and then you learn and but in each scenario like your body your pussy is the only thing you have going for you in a way you're only kind of trading value and I think Julian embodies like three or four different separate tropes like she's the vamp (laughs) (laughs) she's the vamp like you say she's Stacey's mom you know Um, you know she's the like hot mum that everybody wants to sleep with Mm. and that Luke does sleep with Mm. Um, you know from the song from Fountains of Wayne She's also a gold digger because she goes after, she kind of goes after Caleb for the money, but is it right. for money? So she is, she's almost three stereotypes in one character, mm. is what I think. I don't know. What, do what I would say is there's a moment where she kisses Luke at the end of an episode that I just caught up on. He's such a basic bitch of a character, but the there's a little frisson between them, which, given that I just watched three episodes back to back, was the first time I felt turned on in the whole thing. Like something about Julie's kind of, yeah, taking control of the situation was probably the first time I was like, oh, okay, I could be here for this. You know, (laughs) I could be interested in seeing a woman actively turned on and having some agency. That could be exciting. Yeah. Um, So I respect her for that. But in every other sense, she's just probably another stereotype caricature. You can't you can't fault the um, scene tune 
is what oh, I would say. Oh, yeah, well, that's exactly what was so good about the OC and what it did so well is it it also really made use of that kind of like golden age of indie. I mean, golden age, according to who? But yeah, the golden age of indie with kind of like the killers come and play at the bait shop. Mm. The um, theme tune is Phantom Planet. Hey, yeah. And... Um, Seth's like obsessed with Death Cab for Cutie. Tiny trivia, by the way. Um, Mm. You know, you were saying earlier that the creator went on to make Gossip Girl. Mm. Uh, Seth, Adam Brody, played by Adam Brody, ends up, or has, still is currently, married to Leighton Meester? Meester? Mister? Leighton whatever, who is the brunette in Gossip Girl. Basically not the blonde, not Blythe. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I my knowledge of Gossip Girl is not the best, but I did kind of I knew that he was with with Gossip Girl girl, which is interesting. Yeah. They must have embodied this kind of similar world of like Californian teen drama. Well, yeah, because I looked because I was similarly to you. I think I was the most interested in Seth as a character. I read on his Wikipedia page in quite a kind of um, sweet way whoever had written it occasionally Adam Brody would maybe it was Adrian Brody uh, it, is, it is Adam Brody yeah. okay would improvise some of uh, Seth's funny quips because he's genuinely a comedic person <laughs> that is such a super fan isn't it so sweet <laughs> and I was interested to see like what what's he done since because I thought oh of any of them surely he's gone on to do more and it turns out sort of, but also sort of not. It feels as if once you get cast in a show like that, it's really hard to not be that character. Like, you're so embedded in people's hearts and minds as that particular person. It's quite tricky to shake it off, I think. And he's done like a few movies, cameos, or slightly extended bits. He was in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, but otherwise, it sounds like he's either played Seth or is now playing... Seth, but as a dad, in like teen dramas of today. It's interesting because he was, before he was in the OC, he was in Gilmore Girls, which I don't know if you're a fan of. Oh, I haven't. I I know people are obsessed and I've never watched it. Good for you. It will take up too long of your life. Okay. You've got too much on. I know already that. I also (laughs) wonder whether, given my reaction to the OC, I wonder whether I've lost that. I've lost that bit of my soul that Mm. would have engaged with it. Formally, there are still things I become obsessed with. I'm trying to think of. Obviously, Succession I really enjoyed, but I had to ration because it was so intense. And then I'm trying to think if there were other things. Ah, there was something. I really enjoyed Sex Education a lot. A lot, a lot. I wanted to ask you about Sex Education, actually. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so let's talk about sex education because that's okay, the obvious one isn't it to compare it to like the teen, yeah. the teen high school shows that we kind of grew up with mm. sex was treated as like some horrible um, moral failure and that was definitely very very sad to lose your virginity um, and the and- camera was always cut mm. what I noticed from the OC is the camera is always cut like she starts to take off her top and that's where we cut the film Exactly. So it's all yeah. very smoke and mirrors, isn't it? Mm. Whereas now, obviously, the most recent one is sex education. Like, what uh, What did you think of sex education? I think it's so good. I, like, just talking about that idea of cut the camera as soon as she begins to take off her top. Like, the first episode starts with... Now, I've forgotten her name, which is such a shame because she's one of my favourite characters. She starts off in the kind of mean group, the blonde girl who's best... 
who ends up being really good friends with Maeve. Oh, yeah, what's her name? She's I know kind exactly of who you mean, but... ditzy, uh, uh, really fun, and she actually gets assaulted, like, in the second series on the bus. She's mm-hmm. such a brilliant... I think she's a great actress. Anyway, in the very first scene of the very first episode, she's riding her boyfriend naked, tits out, um, and coming, like, orgasming quite loudly. And it was such a shock for me. As, uh, you know, like, I must have been, what, 31 watching that? I was... The audacity of it and the excitement of it, which wasn't like, oh my God, I'm so turned on. It was more just like, this is fucking cool TV. I watch it as a writer thinking that the characters are all really well drawn, I think. Obviously, they end up fulfilling some tropes. You know, Maeve is troubled and uh, as a result has dyed her hair a questionable colour. Like, that's some things are going to happen that are going to happen. But equally... I think it's the way that it explores sex is so helpful because it goes into specific acts, like uh, actual physical positions and things that might not work repeatedly, all the things that might not work and the reasons why they might not work and often explores the psychological or experience-based reasons around why you might not be able to get an erection or why you might have enjoyed sex with other people but never actually wanked and explored what you like in terms of pleasure. Like, all these things that before... Obviously, there's stuff that explored it before. But in such a mainstream, popular way, I can't recall something that takes, like, an assumption that you have as an adolescent about sex. Like, oh, if a girl has a lot of sex, she's probably enjoying the sex. That's... That's definitely what I assumed about friends of mine and uh, girls at school who had a lot more sex than me because I wasn't really having sex at secondary school. I mean, in the sense that, like, um, yeah, you just have these... Because people are unknown to be sexually active, you assume... Because there's such, um, like, an achievement attached to that. There's such, yeah, kudos associated with it. You You just assume it's good that they're having a nice that they're enjoying it that they're having fun and it's really nice to see that explored and often totally exploded and and it's funny as well man like eric is such an extraordinary character really comic but also has a lot of depth and i really enjoyed his relationships with both of his part with his sort of his sort of love triangle because i thought that showed in um in a way that is, I don't, I also don't know whether because I'm watching now with more experience and having learnt about my own emotions and my own capacity to get caught up in people who, the kind of Ryan characters, the people who are extremely attractive, I have like a real sexual charge with, but we don't necessarily have any chat. Like that was my repeated go-to for a lot of my early 20s. Yeah, so I I don't, and now I can reflect on that and understand why that was going on, having had relationships with people who I can have a conversation with and who are nice to me and who I am able to go like, oh, they love me and are going to tell me so. (laughs) Like really nice things like that. So to see Eric going through an experience where he's got both those kind of guys on the go and to see him vacillate between his attraction for them and to understand why he might end up with the one who 
really struggles to show outwardly his affection. I think uh, I think it's really good storytelling. I think it's really good character development. I also think maybe I'm watching it as a more experienced viewer, and so I get more from it. I don't know. I don't know what the balance is there, but I definitely really rate it as a show. Yeah. I definitely really rate it as well. The only comment I'll say about the Eric bullying storyline is that there is something about always showing the homophobic bully as a gay man. For me, Mm. I find some people are just homophobic and they don't need to have they yeah. don't need to have this kind of like sympathetic You're so right about that. of them being gay because it, yeah. it, and it it plays into the same line of oh he's mean to you because he likes you when actually totally. some people are just mean <laughs> some people are just really cruel yeah. yeah i wonder whether it's something about the writer i oh, know that's interestingly given olivia wilde is in the oc plays a character I was I was mixing up but I wonder if it's a similar thing for sex education she said about her movie which is called Book Smart with Beanie Feldstein um, that she wanted to create a high school film where all of the none of the characters were baddies where all of the characters had redeeming features and were essentially likeable and I think that's a really good premise to set out on because it means that you have to find the good in people and you ultimately create like a hopeful piece of work and I feel as if there's something similar going on in sex education where she's wanting to yeah redeem all of her characters no matter how heinous some of their behavior is and you can see that even with the headmaster figure who's obviously yeah just cruel and yeah bigoted but she gives she definitely gives backstory as to why that might occur. So I guess I guess it's a challenge for a writer who wants to fully develop people to to also accept that's I don't know, I think it's yeah. I know that she I know that she didn't have to make him gay in order to redeem him. She didn't have to have the homophobic bully just be like, oh, but the reason he's like that is because he's internalising homophobia himself. I wonder whether she did that, though, because there was chemistry between the Eric character and him already. I'm trying to, see, I'm trying to find reasons. And there is, there is good chemistry. And you're right, mm. and I think it's, it's wrong to say some people are just mean because there's always a reason why somebody is a bully for some reason. It might be they're struggling mm. with something different. I think the main thing for me is that it's quite obvious in a homophobic bullying situation mm. on TV that that character would then turn out to be gay themselves. It probably it does mm. happen, but I mean... You know, I was almost like, there could be another reason why he's really mean and homophobic. And and we do get that with his dad. His relationship Mm. with his dad is really Mm. um, tricky, isn't it? I should point out that that character... What even is that character's name? Awful that I can't remember. Yeah. I have no idea. Mm, It's really on the tip of my tongue. He is pansexual. He discovers. Yeah, because he has a chat with... Again, I can't remember her name. It's really awful. Otis's girlfriend for a bit Ola Ola he has a chat with Ola she explains what pansexuality is he then stands in front of 
I think two different calendars, one of a man, one of a woman, and he can't choose which one he wants to wank over most. So that's how he determines that he's pansexual. <laughs> that's a, and that's a beautiful storyline. <laughs> you're right, you're right, he is pansexual. And that's great. That's a nice, His friendship with Ola is also a nice little journey mm. for him to go on as well. I think TV and film plays an, a massive role in how we then talk about sex. Yeah, actually, we kind of grew up um, at a time when to talk about sex was sort of, it was either, it was one of two things. It was either very salacious and like, oh, I'm this kind of out there girl who doesn't give a fuck, or mm-hmm. it's kind of sad. And it's a bit like the Marissa story line um, in the OC yeah. where it's like, oh, I've had sex with Luke. I didn't enjoy it. And now I feel very upset and emotional about it. Yeah. It, it was never funny. And I think that's uh, with sex education, what they get so right, isn't it? It's like, it's a bit funny. It's a bit awkward. It's a bit silly. Totally. Um, and it's just... I I would love to know how the teenagers of now are going to grow up, like how it's going to affect their sexuality growing up with the kind of like diversity of characters that are on now talking about sex compared to what we had, which was a bit... So much openness, so much, um, yeah, capacity to admit failure. And I don't say that in a way that like, I think they've all fucked up and they're all failures at all. It's more that they're able to go like this thing didn't work or I didn't feel this thing or I felt too much of this thing or I'm concerned about this thing. And to get proper answers as opposed to people just going like, whoa, whoa, don't talk to me, I'm your father, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like that classic go to sort of, this is awkward. You know, people actually do have those conversations. I think the Gillian Anderson character in Sex Education is an amazing facilitator for that because obviously her existing in the job that she does allows Otis to then glean kind of knowledge and a way of speaking that means he can be much wiser than his years. Often that doesn't quite work out and he's not, but it sets up a kind of framework. And I think it's really cool that although she is a character who um, in many ways she does fit quite a lot of archetypes, like she's sexy she's loose. she's often wearing a dressing gown made of silk with some sort of kimono print on it. Uh, so yeah, in some ways she does fit these, she's got a voice that sounds like she smoked 50 a day, but skin that suggests n- not the case. Um, yeah, so although she does play into some of those classic, like a woman who works in sex uh, tropes or sex guru or sex therapist tropes, um, I still think she's a helpful person to have in a central in a central role because so often in TV those characters are really sidelined especially women who work in sex they're often someone god I've lost count of the amount of shows or films where someone goes to see a sex worker uh, to tell them their problems and then comes back to their normal life mm-hmm. and that scene is maybe like two minutes long um and the sex work has been deeply empathetic and allowed this person to cry when they can't show their wife any vulnerability because they have to make the big bucks. Um, and then never spoken about again. We rarely even know their name. They probably don't even have one in the script. So it's cool that Gillian uh, Anderson is allowed to work in sex, talk about sex all day long and still have an existence outside of that. Um, yeah, I wonder whether... It would be quite cool, and I think this might come, it seems to have been suggested, 
at the end of the second series because I know obviously they mainly focus on the young people because it's more their story. It would be quite cool to see her have a life beyond her relationships with men and her work in sex. Again, just to see her have some hobbies. Get a paintbrush out, Gillian. Exactly, I would love to see. Whip the oils around, yeah, Yeah, exactly. I love this as a campaign, get women hobbies. (laughs) Well, this is the thing. I mean, this is also the thing. Maybe my hobbies, because I'm my, like, education has been so limited. I I sometimes think maybe uh, mum doing watercolours is is such a dull, uh, yet another classic stereotype because there's something about especially if she's using acrylics or oils right the idea of like built the texture of the paint she'll probably be drawing a new it's another everything comes back to release releasing the woman's sexuality allowing her to become more her animal self and and it did used to piss me off that when I was struggling to come to connect with my body that it felt like I had failed at being my most animal self somehow it felt like I'd I'd missed the connection somewhere and I was the only one to blame because surely you should just be able to put on some deep cello cover yourself in clay and go for it Uh, I think what was actually much more helpful for me which is something that tv can never really do for you or show you because it's boring it's really boring to watch is to just get really quiet and be really sensitive and to listen and to be really generous with myself and forgiving and like, oh, yeah, attentive and slow. And, none, you know, that's not the kind of thing you can show really on screen. Although I would say, because of the pace at which our drama moves, I would say a portrait of a lady on fire is really good for deep sensuality. I thought you were going to say, it's really good to masturbate too. Oh, no, I haven't (laughs) tried that. But actually, maybe I should. It's just really good for like drawn out, slow ass, Mm. intense kind of build-ups. Yeah. That's true. I think Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a beautiful, beautiful film. Mm. The only, I was a little bit like, actually, I could do with, the sex coming just a little bit earlier. Just you wanted them to bond quicker. <laughs> Maybe that's just my impatience. But the thing with that is like, for for, for Bridgerton, for example, mm. we watched Bridgerton very much as a romp. We didn't, you know, totally tongue in cheek. We didn't get too deep into like the arguments about whether or not it was actually good on a representation level or... All of those things, although we did get into that later, we watched it sort of as pure entertainment to start with. And I was screaming at the TV for them to fuck. And they didn't romp until I think the sixth episode. But then they fucked so hard for so much of the episode. I actually, by the end, was like, get off, get off each other. It was like (laughs) they knew they'd done this thing where they'd held it back so long. They tantalised you for it so long. But then they really showed their true colours because they just fucking gushed it all over the place for a whole episode. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, they thought they'd done such a good thing by not showing you any anything of, uh, what's his name? Lord Duke Rot- of Hastings. Duke of Hastings. Yeah, the Duke tight of Hastings. ass that they suddenly were like, now we can go in hard on it. 
It was a bit much for me, yeah. Yeah, why did they wait so long until, like, why wasn't there, wasn't it second or third episode, like, two or three times rather than fifth episode for the entire episode? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And can I just say as well on that, if we're on that, this is another thing that TV consistently fucks women over on is, and I, I I know this now from doing the pod, really, talking to people, there are some people who I've spoken to who come really easily who for whom it's actually an issue like they have to hold themselves back has to be really careful about their partners not touching them in a certain place because yeah and these these are women it sounds you know we're so we're so used to hearing about premature ejaculation with men but these are women I'm speaking about but in the main women require quite a lot of foreplay and and, and I hate even that it's called foreplay because I think it's it's just sex it's it's mm. the whole thing is sex but in general, uh, TV repeatedly suggests that you can be in the library. He's He has her in the library against the bookcase and goes, and she's on this like stair, this sort of moving staircase. And he penetrates her within less than a minute of them having exchanged a sentence. And I'm just like, I don't know about you, but you went, you went half an hour ago at breakfast I would not necessarily be ready <laughs> to go immediately again and and there's another scene where he goes down you're thinking oh oh great he's going down on her super some lubrication for a change but in in this in he he goes down on her on the stairs this is when they've had this argument about whether or not they're going to stay married because uh, she's tricked him what into ejaculating inside of her it's it's such a it's I mean later on my friend said to me it's rape and, and it made me reevaluate the whole thing. But just for now, just to focus on the going down on the stairs, he goes down on her on the hard, cold, I think probably cement stairs. A, a, a footman could come in at any moment. And he does it for like ooh, 20 seconds, quite aggressively. I know each to their own, but oh, 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 too much. And then um, decides, oh, no, it's not for me, gets up. I don't think it's not it's not the going down on him thing that's not for him, but I think she says something along the lines of, so we'll stay married and have children while he's doing it or something. He whips his head right out of there, stands up straight away and says, it's over. I'm either emigrating to another country or we'll stay here, stay married, but never speak to each other again. And she stands up and has this really emotional conversation with him. Having, having seconds before he's had her mouth on her, He's had his mouth on it. I just think it's a lot to expect of a character to be able to bounce back like that and deal with those sorts of emotional and sensational highs and lows. <laughs> I mean, okay, we'll say one thing about Bridgerton. It's it's definitely not a realistic portrayal <laughs> of sex at all. And it's also the bookcase that you mentioned earlier is a very, it's a lot like... Uh, is it atonement where they also have sex in the library? Mm. Maybe it's harking back to that or it's kind of, you know, giving us a generous wink and a nod to atonement. But there's a lot of ooh, there's a lot of standing sex in films in general. And I would, I would argue that it's not very often one has standing sex. There's maybe 70% standing sex on film and there's maybe 5% standing sex in life. And generally the standing sex in life, um, I don't know, this is maybe revealing a lot about me. The standing sex in life is an effort to be like a film and it lasts for maybe two minutes of the overall sex, if that, before 
one or both of you is like, my legs, my knees, they won't take it. <laughs> or you uh, just collapse into a heap together because <laughs> yeah, you, know, totally. other, you cannot lift someone for such a long oh, time. Oh, no. And that's another thing. Like, there's so many ways in which you can get in your head about doing sex wrong or not doing sex the way it looks in films. Yeah, I've, I've rarely been with somebody who can hold me up standing for that long and to, to internalise the idea that that's because I'm in some way not feather light enough to fuck mm. to fuck standing it's just bullshit it's not even a nice angle like get over it <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it is a good angle and I do I do think the sort of like always being able to lift someone up it there's it's tied into the idea of you have to be so waif like that you can be kind of like I'd really what I would really like to see having talks about sex standing up needing needing to stop in just stop it just stop <laughs> it in film <laughs> um, I think they like it because it means you get you keep your hair nice and you can see both actors in profile I think that's what's really going on but anyway um, I I would like to see a woman holding a man. Standing up and holding a man on her (laughs) and just sort of almost Ken doll-esque sort of thrusting him in and out. (laughs) That would be very impressive. That would be very impressive. Yeah. I mean, there's some, I know some hench women. I'd love that. I'd really love to see that. I can lift my girlfriend up. Like Incredible. Yeah. I mean, but she's quite small. So that's probably why that can work. But um, Mm. yeah, without, that's maybe too much. But (laughs) No, not at all. I mean, I thought it kind of went with that. I I was going to say, obviously it goes without saying that same sex relationships someone will hold some someone may well want to hold someone up and though though anyone holding anyone up is impressive I feel just because the classic uh, trope is is a man holding a woman up against a bookcase we've we've realized today I would like to see it reversed and I'd like to see it against instead of a bookcase what would I like to see it against <laughs> something more realistic like um the yeah. things outside Tesco or... a fridge yeah <laughs> an open fridge <laughs> so as she thrusts him in and out of her his ass just repeatedly smacks against a trifle <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So quickly, someone needs to get us to write this show. <laughs> this is why I won't get hired with sex education. I'd be like, and then Eric can pick him up, put him in a trifle, and they can giggle about the fact that he only got through to the jelly layer. <laughs> amazing, amazing. I did kind of want to know a little bit more about the boarding school scenario. Yeah, listen, it was intense. So, yeah, I'd never been to a school like it, and I was really attracted to it because I did a summer course in Bristol. My auntie and uncle lived there. And I stayed with them for a summer and did a theatre course at the Old Vic and loved it. And uh, naively assumed that if I went to this school, because I could only go if I could board because I didn't I didn't live anywhere near it. My family didn't live anywhere near Bristol, really, in a way that was like commutable. And, uh, and, and I had this, this really amazing summer where I'd met loads of, to be honest, I'd done Macbeth. We'd performed it on the Old Vic stage and I played Lady Macbeth and I remember my Macbeth was like much older than me and I really fancied him and I hoped that he would give me some sign. And he sort of did. I realised looking back, he really did. And I just was so um, closed off to like thinking anyone could fancy me that I just didn't clock it. But we still had a really fun time and it, there was a lot of uh, going out in Bristol town. So I assumed that if I went to school there, that would just continue. 
And then I got to this school and of course, like it was much, much stricter than I'd anticipated. It wasn't like Harry Potter at all, uh, which I know is a cliche that people say, oh, I read about Harry Potter and I thought boarding school would be like that. But I definitely, I just, I just, I just had taken uh, for granted how um, much agency I'd had up until that point, like just going to school, catching the bus, coming home, sorting myself out. My mum worked. My brother like did his own thing. That was us. So there was no reason why. And I've been quite an independent kid. My dad moved to Australia when I, when I was six and we had flown to visit him. My brother's three years older than me. From that point onwards, we got lost in Bangkok Airport. I had to get ourselves across from domestics international. He was nine, I was six years old. So I'd done quite, I'd been quite, I'd had to be quite bold in the past. So I really felt imprisoned. And this is a good school, you know, I don't want to chat it down at all too much, but it just, we didn't really gel. And I really lost myself. I worked really, really hard. I completely, um, I put everything into academia and I, uh, I developed an eating disorder and I became really, really ha- unhappy. And uh, uh, looking back, like I was saying, I'd really like to be able to like reach through the years and just wrap that person in a hug because she was going through so much stuff after the Bristol Old Vic summer school. That must have been a year before. It must have been like a summer, then a year, another year at school. And then I went the following summer because... I did like all the scholarship exams and stuff, which meant I could go relatively cheaply. And um, otherwise I would never have been allowed to go. But I just, it's funny that we've talked about how lightweight a character, the Marissa sort of broken girl is, because I'm sure in some sense I felt uh, connected to her and like the things, some of the things she was going through reflected back on my experience. But Also, in a way, I was so, I was like really dying inside. And I think I just wanted to lose myself in these gorgeous looking shapes. It didn't really matter to me if they had um, fully fleshed out lives. In fact, I think probably if they had had, it would have been too much for me. I I really, it was like junk food. And I, I, I actually, I can remember we'd sit, in this you know big living room and some girls would like do massage on each other and some girls would share biscuits and I would sit and eat broccoli steamed broccoli on my own and that sounds so desperate like I did have friends and they were lovely lovely people and there were definitely moments where I had a great time like it's really easy I think to look back on your teenage years and and just like throw the whole thing on a fire that's not the case at all but there were definitely periods, long stretches where I was really lost. And so, yeah, this commitment to like a lot of my life became really ordered and um, controlled. And one thing that was very strictly in my routine was watching the OC. And it was a real it was a real moment of pleasure that I gave to myself, a real moment of like, pretty vacuous, extraordinarily sunny, very attractive people having a terrible time, but always looking fit doing it. 
<laughs> and I really lived for it. Yeah. I think there's a glamorization there. And I think with that glamorization, like, comes responsibility. And maybe that's why, like, even though it's escapism to watch characters like Marissa, like, be so cross when they live in such a beautiful house, seeing women so stick thin be repeatedly saved over and over mm. and have a miserable time having sex. Like that has a huge effect on people as well. Mm. I completely agree. And I still, weirdly, when I was just watching it back, now kind of very thankfully fully recovered, I can't help but uh, when they, there'll, be, there'll occasionally be like, a ch- like chocolate, somebody gets given a big box of chocolates or somebody gets given cookies. I can't help but like, uh, focus in on the actress is eating it but sh- you never actually see it go in the mouth the camera always it's like sex it's weird it's how they cut away when somebody's top is just coming off before any actual touching happens and they cut away before any actual imbibing happens when it comes to food I mean in shows written by men there's very little women enjoying themselves <laughs> <laughs> And that's our show. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Instagram at TV Change Me or on Twitter at TV Change Me Pod. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe to us on all your favorite podcast apps and it will get downloaded straight to your telephone mobile every time there's a new episode, which would be amazing. This podcast was produced by me, Beth Watson, edited by myself. Uh, all music was produced by the beautiful musical mastermind that is Iora Music. You can find her on Spotify and Instagram by searching Iora, that's I-O-R-A. Um, and uh, I think that's everything. Cheers, babes. Bye. Bye.